Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. I'm Megan Kelly. Today on the show, Shelby Steele and his son, Eli Steele. But first, I want to talk to you about Norton 360 with LifeLock. No one wants to deal with cyber threats or find out that their personal information has been compromised online, especially during the holidays when you're online all the time. But with all that holiday gift shopping and browsing online, you could be one bad click away from a cyber threat headache. Get Norton 360 with LifeLock to alleviate that burden and help protect your identity and your devices against cyber threats. Norton 360 with LifeLock provides all-in-one protection with device security, identity theft protection, and a VPN for online privacy, and more. Help protect your private and financial information when you go online with real-time device protection. If you have a problem with identity theft, a U.S.-based identity restoration specialist will work to fix it. No one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But why not at least try? Get in the fight. Norton 360 with LifeLock is a powerful ally to you this holiday season. Save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash MK. Do it now. Norton.com slash MK for 25% off. Shelby Steele is one of the smartest men in America. He's a celebrated author. He's written White Guilt. He's written The Content of Our Character. He's won the National Humanities Medal, the National Book Critics Circle Award. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and he happens to be the writer and narrator of the new movie. You can get it on Amazon now, after some hullabaloo, called What Killed Michael Brown. His son, Eli, is an award-winning filmmaker and director, and they worked in tandem on this project, which has not been without controversy or without a profound message. And I think if you followed the BLM movement at all, what happened in Ferguson, Missouri five years ago with Michael Brown, uh, you're going to find their messaging and their hard look at what really was behind Michael Brown's circumstances uh, as he had that fatal confrontation with the officer that day. Really fascinating. It's raw, it's honest, it's provocative, and it's really telling. Without further ado, Eli and Shelby Steele. Thank you both so much for being here. So Shelby, this this movie was so interesting to me because I covered this case wall to wall when I was on the air in, in the primetime at Fox News. And 
if you looked at it from a lawyer's perspective, it had obvious problems right from the beginning. And the hands up, don't shoot narrative was falling apart before our very eyes. But so many in the media refused to acknowledge it until ultimately the lie was put to that story by none other than Eric Holder's Department of Justice that came out and said it was a lie. Michael Brown didn't have his hands up. He wasn't saying don't shoot when he was shot by uh, the police officer in that case. And so I looked at this movie that you guys made, you and your son, Eli, and thought, why now? Why five years later go back to this? Well, I think, you know, time uh, offered some uh, perspective uh, so that we could, um, we were interested in in the the isolated story of what happened in in Ferguson, Missouri, but we were also interested in, in what it signified in terms of race relations in America on a broader level. And so the 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 five years uh, intervening between when it actually happened and when we did made the film uh, was very was comfortable. Uh, people were people had digested things by this time and um, and had had deeper thoughts than they might have had if uh, if we had started when the actual event took place. Mm-hmm. So it gave us a perspective. People were so willing to believe that story. They wanted to believe the story that here is this 18 year old man begging the police officer for his life. And the white cop shot him down repeatedly and over his desperate pleas. I'll never forget the shot on CNN with um, Sonny Hostin and Sally Cohn and a couple of others holding up signs that read hands up, don't shoot to show their disgust. And if this had been an adjudication by a jury at that point, you could understand it. But the case was very much in dispute. And so that gesture was really inappropriate. But it was it indicated what much of the media was doing then and much of Ferguson Mm -hmm. was doing at the time, which was believing without evidence. You, you, You talk in the movie about there's a how there's a desire. There's a desire to believe because they're pursuing not actual truth, but poetic truth. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that uh, in this instance, they're pursuing power. Uh, and in many ways, this whole incident is, is really uh, about power. Um, there is a, a, a need, a compulsion to believe the, this, this false narrative, this poetic truth, the, a truth manipulated to serve one's political ideological goals um, and so that 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 truth focuses on victimization of of blacks and if you can somehow establish that blacks were victims of white racism then you, power redounds to you uh, and in the in American culture the 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 political left the ideological left is based almost entirely on the idea of black victimization. Um, now, the, the, the environment also now is becoming a, a, a source of the same sort of thing. But, but for the most part, we're, black victimization is really um, pregnant with power. Uh, and so this, so Ferguson, the shooting of one kid uh, in Ferguson, Missouri, causes uh, sort of worldwide ripples. Um, That same year in Chicago, 3,000 boys were shot. Uh, 700 were killed. 
There was very little response at all. Uh, there was no power there. There, there had to be a white finger, a uh, trigger finger, shooting and killing a black kid, usually a male, almost always a male. Uh, then we're duplicating all of American history. We're able then to say that, you see, uh, systemic racism is, is still with us. Uh, this poor boy lost his life and, and as, as a result of it. And so people seize that and, try, and exploit that and make it, turn it into really enormous power, much bigger than, we, than I think we realize sometimes. Political correctness. The influence uh, of the left in universities, now on, in, corpor in corporations, the corporate world, uh, this is now a power that simply has to be contended, uh, dealt with. Um, so there was a lot at stake in, in Ferguson and uh, more than met the eye at the very beginning. The film takes a hard look at Ferguson, which is a, an area right outside of St. Louis, looks at its history, looks at because the question is that the movie is in search of an answer to the question, what killed Michael Brown? And you make the assertion in the film that it, it's a film about a racist murder that was neither racist nor a murder. So what what did kill Michael Brown? And I thought it was interesting how you spent so much time on this this public housing that was brought into the area in sort of what you call the post 1960s liberalism phase of our country's history. Uh, Pruitt Igo. And I wanted to ask you, Eli, as the filmmaker, why that was important, how you thought the public housing history in the area figured in to how Michael Brown died, why he died, since it obviously happened years and years before he was born. And also to tell the audience, just so they understand that uh, you are hearing impaired. So you're you're we have some a setup where you can hear me. Uh, and hopefully the audience will be able to understand you even though we don't have a video. So what are your thoughts on that Pruitt-Igo and how that factors in? When you look back at history, you start to see that Black people, when they came up during the Great Migration, um, beginning in 1900, were very aspirational. I mean, you have to be very aspirational to leave a land that you've, all, you've known your whole life for the... Um, the challenge of movies in a northern city. And these people really succeeded. They were building up equity. They were building new lives. And we took all that away from them and moved them into housing projects. When you take away equity from people, when you take away their responsibility, their freedom, and move them into housing projects, you rob people of so much. And then, I'm, I'm giving you the very short version, then the housing projects don't work. We tear them down, we blow them up. Well, what do you do with that population afterwards? Michael Brown, all of these people, they have no idea why they are in the world that they are in. And so that's why the story of who I go is so important because it's a lost history. Who I go played a huge role in the black underclass of today. Mm -hmm. Post-60s, Pruitt-Igo, and liberalism, the, this desire to, quote, help. But what you guys say in the film really created the ghettoization, this is what you say in the film, of Black families, creating, as you say, Eli, the, the creation of a permanent Black underclass that, that could never quite get out of 
if not the actual buildings of the public housing, the the belief that they were incapable of lifting themselves up. And I, I wonder, you know, as I'm watching the film, if you how much of this do you think still goes on today and influences cases like we saw over the summer, George Floyd, Jacob Blake, and so on, because this is a problem that exists beyond Ferguson, Missouri, Shelby. Uh, yes, it, it sure is. It's a it's a pattern that we fell into back in the mid '60s when all the civil rights legislation was passed, uh, and in, and in effect, blacks became absolutely free at that point. Now, obviously, there was racism that continued, but we were really granted freedom um, at that point. A big event happened then that we have not dealt with yet in America. And we've not, I I don't think, fully understood. When a country confesses to having oppressed a people for four centuries in the most brutal instance of oppression in all of history, and then finally in 1964, you pass a civil rights bill, you say, oh, we were wrong, we're sorry. Uh, That confession, and that's what I, I call it the sort of great confession, put white America in a position was after you confess to to a sin you have to then redeem yourself from that sin and so white america was put in a position where it it had to where where race was concerned it had to redeem itself and we have been in that redemptive phase of race relations since the mid 60s where the real focus we we say as we did in pruitt igo we're going to save the lives of all these black people. But we don't really look at them. We don't really see them as human beings. We're just going to save their lives because we want to be able to say we are redeemed of our, our collusion with racism. It redeems white America. It redeems the legitimacy of, of the democracy, of our government, to, to then begin to, to give things to blacks, all sorts of programs. Great society, war on poverty, affirmative action, public housing, school busing, advanced welfare payments, so forth and so on. Just give, 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 not because we want to help black people, but because we want to redeem white people. Mm. And so all of these policies then, in effect, exploited black people all over again. Now we're using black people as evidence of white innocence of racism. Mm. And and so there the what President Johnson who came up with a bunch of these programs, uh he was concerned really about preserving the moral legitimacy of the American democracy. So we he we so he said we've confessed. Now what we have to do is 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 redeem ourselves in order to be legitimate. We have to help these people that we that we oppressed for so long, and to this day, that's the psychology that pretty much controls race relations, relations between blacks and whites. And so blacks now say, "Oh, you know what? Our big thing, our our source of power, is the fact that we were victimized. That's what gets us attention in the larger society." That's what gets us social programs and and uh, r- uh, racial preferences and universities and so forth. Diversity, but that's what gets us. That is our 
our victimization. And so what do we end up doing? That becomes an incentive in black America for us to think of ourselves as victims. And so we now, black America after the 60s has what I call a victim-focused identity. If you want to make most blacks angry, tell them that they're not really victims. They'll go up for a lot of things, but that's where that's where the foot goes down and and uh, the battle and the battle begins. You can't tell blacks that. That's our identity. That's our power in the world. Hmm. You you take that away. You say we're not really a victim. That America's changed. That there's opportunity. That there's freedom everywhere. So you you say that, and you're going to make a lot of people outraged. More with Shelby and Eli Steele in just a moment. But first, blinds galore could be a savior to you. If you are worried about feeling like you're sitting on the sun when you're in your living room, or if you are worried about privacy, think about blinds galore. They're having a huge, huge Black Friday and Cyber Monday sale, and they're going on right now. They're giving you, hello, 50% off everything. 5-0, people. This is definitely the best time to get new blinds or shades before the new year. Because, you know, even in the winter, the the sun can be blinding. And hurry up because the sale is going to end soon. Blinds Galore believes that you deserve high-quality, custom-built blinds and shades. And that's exactly what you're going to get. This is more than just a blinds aisle in the hardware store. These are blinds experts. Nothing will get made until you order it. And the experts at BlindsGalore.com have covered over 2 million windows and counting. They'll make it super easy to get a completely custom product, custom, I say, that you're going to love. Designer product without the designer price. Yes. This is a family-owned and family-run company that's been doing this for over 20 years, led by a mom-and-daughter duo that truly wants you to love your view. You can do all of this from the comfort of your couch. You just take the measurements of your windows and then you customize the whole situation online. You'll be able to see exactly how your blinds or shades are going to look on screen before you buy. All right, so get the custom blinds and shades that you've always wanted in your home at Blinds Galore. Visit BlindsGalore.com today and let them know I sent you by choosing The Megan Kelly Show at checkout. Then take 50% off during Black Friday and Cyber Monday. This can make such a nice difference in a room. You got to do it. That's BlindsGalore.com. There was this the controversy from the Smithsonian sending out notification that words like uh, self-reliance are racist that you know blacks right. can identify with that and for you to assume they can it, it means you are racist means you are you are you, racist you say in the film that government and its policies have been an impediment to black progression because they've disbelieved in our agency I love yes. the way you phrase that, that, that these programs disbelieve in black agency. I know right. people who defend the programs would say, no, they were simply trying to remove impediments that made black agency not enough, right? That they couldn't get over some of these historical historical barriers to entry in areas like mortgages or banking or universities or some corporate jobs without something to help even what had been an uneven playing field. Right. That was the presumption. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how do you factor that in? That that they like they, the, the folks who would be offended by what you said, saying, we believe blacks have agency, 
but they were playing on an uneven playing field and we needed some government help to try to even it out so we could play fair. Well, what I would say, and you know, I have the benefit of, of uh, hindsight, <laughs> 50 years of hindsight. Uh, but what, what I would say is, here's what's wrong with that. You figured out that maybe they needed to, um, maybe they needed to uh, be helped and have some barriers removed and so forth. And, and certainly, let's, let's actually stop discrimination, stop redlining, stop all, all of that uh, certainly must be done. Where the the failure was to actually see black people as human beings, and not as black people, but as human beings, because you can't give human beings things like this um, without actually asking something of those human beings. So the corruption of of, of most of the racial reform that came out of the '60s was that it asked absolutely nothing of the people by way of development of the people it, it claimed to help. It, it therefore ended up oppressing them all over again. And to this very day, we, we, we talk now at universities where, you know, political correctness and, and uh, diversity, and they're, they're just consumed with this. My, my response always is to, to students, what is your grade point average? Are you taking advantage of the racial preference you got? Are you developing? Um, and the, the, one of the reasons these programs have all failed is because, again, they don't ask for anything in return. They don't say, we will help you, but you, but you have the agency over your own life. Your fate is in your hands, and if you don't do it, it won't happen, no matter how we try to support you. No matter how many barriers we we remove, uh, nothing will happen until you take responsibility for it. And that's that was the evil of oppression for four centuries. We didn't let you have agency over your own life. The challenge now is is we're giving it to you. Make something of yourself. Make something. Uh, join the modern world. Uh, but you will, you're the one who will have to do that. Um, and we still have not gotten to that, that point in terms of our racial reform in America. We still, this is, and again, this is what Ferguson, Missouri is all about. Michael Brown's tragic story. Um, uh, the idea of black agency was, was in a sense killed off by 50 years of this kind of liberalism. Uh, so now to demand that blacks do something themselves, boy, you'd be called a racist in a split second. You'd be seen as an enemy when actually that's exactly what blacks need to hear. That's the rules everybody else has to live by. Why not us? How can we get ahead in the world if we don't do that? The messaging has gone, not entirely, but largely the other way. Just just this, not long ago, Michelle Obama came out. And I'm quoting now, she said, for all those tidy stories we tell ourselves about hard work and determination, the reality in America is, quote, a lot more complicated because for too many people in this country, no matter how hard they work, there are structural barriers working against them. Is that true? Isn't that a horrible thing, message to send? 
to a young black kid now trying to get his maybe work his way into college or, or get ahead in life, and you're going to basically send him, tell him that no matter how hard he works, it's not never going to pay off because he's black, and you think you're a friend of the race because you're talking in this way. You you are as bad as any oppressor. The the segregationist. I grew up in the segregationist era. They didn't they didn't doubt us in this way. They didn't doubt our very spirit. Tell us that we had a right to be irresponsible. If Michelle Obama, God bless her, uh, would would really stop and think for a minute, the the message that you that what she's that that message that she's you just enunciated is meant for white people. She wants white people to stay on the hook to black people. That's all she cares about. Uh, that's the black victim-focused uh, identity. I'm as a black, I am a victim, and you owe me. And that's the that's the arrangement that Michelle okay. Obama is trying to but let me is ask trying you, to put forward. Are are we on the hook? Are aren't we still on the hook at all? For, for what's well, happened in our that, past? That's, that's, a good, that's, a, that's a very good question, and it needs to be discussed and debated. But my point is that whether you are, whether whites are on the hook or not on the hook, the challenge for black Americans is development. We're on the hook for development. We have to become all the great things we said we were going to be if we were just, if we were just set free. That's our responsibility to history. We have to become something. We have to make something of ourselves. Let's get specific on just one example. Let's take Hollywood, uh, a, an industry that's just sadly known for excluding blacks, both in acting roles and certainly in it, uh, producing and directing roles. And I think folks would say no amount of excellence is going to get any meaningful number of black Americans over those barriers because there is an inherent bias in the industry that doesn't want them there. And without shaming them, calling them out for racism, demanding even quotas on certain roles or production um, jobs, nothing will change. What do you think of that? I th I think that that's a unique situation, Hollywood. Uh, I have no no doubt that there has been uh, uh, bias, um, and more importantly, I think it should be fought tooth and nail. Blacks should be absolutely outraged and should should uh, do everything in their power, whites as well, to find ways to end that kind of bias so that everybody has a fair chance and so forth. That's one side of it, and I'm I don't have any problem with that, um, and I frankly don't think probably Hollywood has a problem with that. I think they're probably at this point in their history open to that kind of thing, but there's another side to the story, and that is that in when you take agency over your own life, when you take responsibility for yourself, and you say I want I want this, and I no matter what in the world, it's a fair thing and I this is something that's important for me and I I want to have it then you are then it's on you you and you make a movie mm -hmm. you uh there'll be people who will be happy to, who to, to fund and support you you get really good at filmmaking you enter the competition 
You make movies that everybody wants to see. You com- in other words, you compete. In the- you don't sit on the sidelines and say you guys are racist. You make the best movie of the year. Put all your energy there. Uh, compete. And the minute you start to compete and you do well and you make a movie that's a hit, everybody in Hollywood is going to imitate you. Well, and you- pretty soon you look up and race won't be relevant. It's not lost on me that I'm I'm sitting here talking to a black filmmaker, Eli Steele, who just made an amazing movie. <laughs> Eli, what are your thoughts on this, on barriers to entry that may that may be racist and overcoming them? There are definitely barriers. Um, I wrote about the uh, the first um, black jockeys that won the Kentucky Derby in the 1870s, 1880s. Well, we can't find a black actor that's small enough. Black movies most tell. Um, overseas, no European watch black movies. So you hear that over and over and over. I also heard this from black people too, from black executives. So it was not just white people. And so you get all of it, but what my father's saying is very true because it's very difficult to get all these rejections to try and make a living. You know, I got married, I had kids, and I almost gave up filmmaking. But, you know, I had too much love for it. I've wanted to do it since I was like 13 years old. So I just went on the outside and carved my own path. And here I am today. So that's sort of what you have to do when the institution basically closes the door in your face. You either quit or you find another way. Do you think you had an advantage in having a father who... I presume, was raising you with this notion of you're the captain of your ship, you. Definitely. But, you know, obviously we live in a very political world and I'm in a very liberal world. So people found out who my father was. It was definitely, you know, a barrier in, in many ways. But there were many, many advantages, you know, um, you know, his love for me, his inspiration, his guiding, the path that he carved, the path that he built upon, the path that he own father built. Yeah, I am the beneficiary of all of that. You make the film. Your father, uh, Shelby, your dad was a bus driver. Uh, you, you, you both make it in this world as as men of color. Yeah, and you make this important film with your perspective on what led to the problems in Ferguson and, in particular, this case, Michael Brown's death. And mm-hmm. Amazon, one of the biggest companies in America, promptly turns around and says. No, we don't want it. Now, I I understand they've ultimately reversed it after a lot of public pressure. But their first response was, you don't get to put your film on Amazon because only some black voices matter. And if they happen to be right leaning, they don't matter to us at all. In fact, this is deemed offensive content. We're not going to air it. When you saw that, Shelby, were you surprised? Well, yes and no. You know, you uh, you you. I certainly, on one level, was not surprised. I mean, I, I I know the the fascination with censorship that the big tech world uh, has these days. Uh, but just to be rejected, the the tone of the rejection email uh, was really hateful. I mean, it was like, don't uh, don't uh, get think you can resubmit this. Uh, don't change the title and try to resubmit it. Don't call us up and ask what you can do to fix. Don't do this. Don't do that. Just evaporate, disappear. Uh, 
there was hate in that. Coming from a, a company the size of Amazon to one little guy out here trying to make a, a, a film, he and his son, uh, seemed to me to ridiculous. A bit ridiculous. Uh, it got the story got picked up by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, did, did an editorial on it and so forth. Um, and so then, out of the blue, we get a call from Amazon saying that they somehow had made a mistake, uh, whatever that me- means, and that they would uh, uh, be happy to start streaming our film. Uh, and so there we are they have done that and and uh, i'm i'm grateful that they made they changed their mind they have a tremendous huge uh platform for films uh it would have injured our our film profoundly if they did, hadn't done that um and so i'm i'm grateful for the way things turned out but um it is obviously evidence of a deep deep problem uh, that is, is now sort of in the news almost every day, the con- uh, congressional hearings and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. But we're happy to have have, have uh, slipped out of the news at least for a minute. It's crazy how they're cracking down on anything that isn't orthodox. You know, we've seen this with Abigail yeah. Schreier's book that touches on um, what she says is a, is a contagion amongst some teenage girls when it comes to becoming trans. And her book is getting not reviewed, pulled off of shelves. She had a problem with Amazon as well. Um, The censorship that is being laid down against people who have unorthodox views is scary to me. It's it's very contrary to sort of fundamental principles we have in this country of you know, speaking more, not less when you're on controversial subjects. How much blowback have you gotten, Shelby, in being, you know, a heterodox black man for not sort of towing the party line? Because you don't you don't sound like uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. You do not sound at all like Ibram X. Kendi. And I imagine that's posed some problems for you. Uh, well, I can uh, I'm used to it. <laughs> uh, it's It's been a while. Uh, I am I, um, no longer surprised by it or or uh, um i'm kind of a known entity at this point and uh so how many how many names can you call me um it was difficult when my kids for them and then when they were younger um uh, and they they paid a little price and in, in college and so forth uh, by for being my uh, my children um so i've seen this uh for for a long time uh, but it's only made me um, maybe more fervent in in uh, what when the work I'm doing, and uh, it's pushed me further than I thought I, I would be pushed. And so I accept my fate. Uh, and it's it's uh, it's as I as I sort of preach, it's it's in my hands, and it's uh, uh, it's up to me to make something of it. There's some good parts to it, some as well as as uh, as well as a bunch of flack that, that one has to take. Yeah, it's crazy that you get bullied for having views that don't line up with the with a, a very large mass of people on the other side who are very well represented. <laughs> Their point of view, they don't need one additional guy. But they're insecure. They're insecure, I think, on a on a on a deep level. And the anger that the you know, as the object of their anger, uh, it, it's I obviously must really make them nervous. They must know that something I'm saying has has a, an element of truth in it, 
And they're, they're afraid of that truth. They're afraid at some point they'll be made accountable for that truth. It'll catch up to them. Uh, and so, you know, their energy goes into sort of uh, to punishing people like me. Well, um, the, you know, that that voice won't be stilled. It'll, it'll always be here. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm, I feel very comfortable um, where I'm in the position that I'm in. For me, you know, this is an example of, you know, I come from, you know, Jewish people and, you know, black people and, you know, the power to be always like a shining, you know, they always say, you're the good Negro or you're the bad Negro. Well, in today's time, we are the bad Negroes. We're not the good one. Amazon was the good one. So that's where the racism really comes from. It coming from the liberals. It coming more from white liberals. They're picky and choosy which Negroes they want. And that's why it's so dangerous in this world, because why do they have the power to decide who is part of the amplified Black voices platform? And who are the good ones to get in? And who are the ones to exclude it? And the bigger question is, why are they excluding us? Probably the easiest answer is because we point the finger right at them. Coming up in just one moment, an incredible exchange between Eli Shelby and yours truly. This unfolded completely spontaneously, and it was a beautiful and moving moment. You got to stay tuned. It has to do with Eli's hearing issue and some assumptions I made and others made, and even Eli may have made about this process and how it might go. And trust me, you're going to love it. Okay. I promise you that you will love it. Trust me on that and stay tuned. Uh, Before I get to that though, let's talk about Pure Talk. Who's your wireless provider? Is it AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile maybe? Well, what if I told you you could be saving over 400 bucks a year without having to sacrifice your service or any of your coverage? Pure Talk is on the exact same network as one of those big carriers, and it gives you the same bars, the same service, but for half the price. Why wouldn't you do this? How do they do it? Well, they don't play the same games as the big carriers who sell you unlimited data when you don't need that much. Pure Talk will give you unlimited talk, text, and two gigs of data, all for just 20 bucks a month. 20. And their customer service is right here in the U.S. It's second to none. Just take a look at Consumer Affairs, Pure Talk, number one rated wireless company. How about that? Their CEO is a U.S. veteran who understands what it means to serve his country. So make the switch. It'll be the easiest decision you make all day. Get unlimited talk, text, plus two gigs of data, all for just 20 bucks a month. From your cell phone, dial pound 250 and say Megan Kelly, and you will save an additional 50% off your first month. Aren't we all looking to save money this holiday season? That's pound 250, say Megan Kelly. Pure talk, simply smarter, wireless. And now before we get back to Shelby and Eli, I want to tell you, this is a feature we call Real Talk, where we're talking about something, something going on in the news, or in this case, it's going to be in my life. So Thanksgiving is upon us. Uh, As you know, the holiday season is officially here. And I want to tell you about a tradition we do in my family that I love. Maybe you guys know about this. Maybe not. But if if not, listen up. So it's always hard to get your kids talking right around the table. And when it's Thanksgiving, you're with extended family and they want to hear about your life and they want to hear about your kids' lives. And of course, you're all six feet away and, you know, wearing your masks in between bites and doing all the stuff. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Um, but we play Rosebud Thorn, and I highly recommend this. We do it on birthdays and we do it on um, Thanksgiving usually, where you go around the table and everybody offers their rose, their bud, and their thorn. And the way it works is you look back at the past 12 months or whatever months, and you give your rose, which is the best thing that's happened to you. And then you give your thorn, which is the worst thing that's happened to you, you know, the the thorn of your year that you wish had not occurred. And then you give your bud for the upcoming year ahead, you know, the thing you feel most hopeful about. And my kids love playing it. And it's been funny to listen to their rose and buds and thorns evolve over the years, especially my little guy Thatcher. But they'll talk. It'll get them chatting about what's important to them. And then the rest of the family can weigh in. It's a great conversation starter. And uh, I highly recommend it. It's it's one of our family traditions that and I never cook. Those are our two traditions. And I, I really <laughs> highly recommend them. And don't think it's because I now have dough because I, I've never cooked. Even when I had no dough, I would scrimp together enough that I could just at least buy it at the grocery store. So I'd, all I'd have to do is reheat it. One time I cooked years ago. It's actually a funny story. I'll tell it to you quickly. But Doug and I were hosting John O'Hurley and Lisa O'Hurley. You know, John O'Hurley from Seinfeld. Elaine, Mr. Peterman. He came uh, and she came and their son. And we tried to cook, Doug and I. And long story short, we uh, started a big fire. And the turkey like container, the, the tray, it opened up. It leaked. The grease went all over the oven. A fire started. We managed to put out the fire. The turkey was extremely dry. <laughs> We were taking it out of the oven. There's still some like juice in the tray and it got on my dog who thankfully was a Shih Tzu. So he's covered in hair. He didn't feel anything. But then the other Shih Tzu was just licking that Shih Tzu all day long because he was covered in turkey grease. (laughs) Then we realized halfway through the dinner, this is on Thanksgiving Day, that we had left two of the bags at the grocery store when we bought the Thanksgiving fixings. We took two and we left two. So we didn't have anything. Really, all we had was the turkey. We had some stuffing. And that was pretty much it. We'd have green beans, mashed potato. We had nothing. And we didn't have gravy. So now I've got a very dry turkey and no gravy, people. So what am I going to do? And I'm not exactly like, let me fix it myself. I'll just whip something up kind of person. So Doug went out to the Dwayne Reed, which is the grocery or the the drugstore here in New York. He gets one of those little packs. There's only one left. It's like the dry crystals of gravy. He brings it back home. I follow the directions. Exactly, people. Exactly. I start stirring. It's like this huge bowl of soup when I started that looked brown. I just keep stirring, keep stirring as it tells me to. And it's getting smaller and smaller. Now it is getting thicker. That's good. Starting to resemble gravy. Tiny. And I was like, well, I don't need to have gravy as it gets smaller. I'm like, well, Doug doesn't need to have gravy. Smaller. And I'm like, well, Lisa's probably not going to have gravy. Tiny. And finally, I'm like, okay, John. Here's your thimble full of gravy for your burnt, extremely dry turkey. (laughs) I remember when the smoke started billowing out of the kitchen at one point, John yelled, we've got John George on speed dial, which is this fancy restaurant here in New York. I'm like, I've got this. I've got this. But they were dear friends. They never complained. Uh, We've had many other Thanksgivings with them after that, to their credit. They gave us another choice, but it was pre-agreed that I would order the food, which I do. Uh, So those are my recommendations. Order, outsource if you're not really a chef like me, and Rosebud Thorn. Okay, without further ado, back to Shelby and Eli. Enjoy this. 
You point out in the film that Blacks were doing okay when it comes to finding housing and independence between the 40s and the 60s. Um, that their numbers were moving up and in the right direction. And then came the Great Society, and then came the housing projects, and then came the no man in the house rule uh, that related to welfare. And things really started to shift another way. And <laughs> there's really not been a lot of responsibility taken for that. It's I know it's considered verboten to even talk about in some circles. Um, but your whole point is that White guilt has led to some really bad decision making that is, in essence, dehumanizing of blacks and their agency that only sees skin color and is paternalistic, that paternalistic attitude. That's the number one thing I feel when I see uh, the the messages coming in, in the schools these days in corporate America, which is basically, you know, the the white man needs to help the black man. The white man's the oppressor of the black man. And somehow the black man is powerless. It's all up to the white man to either shut up, get out of the way, pave the way, uh, apologize for having been in the way. And I, to me, it just feels insulting. It, I, I'm insulted on behalf of my black friends that I'm supposed to look at them like this. And, and I supposedly have all the power, Shelby. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, it's horrible because it basically says white supremacy is good because these are all white supremacists who believe in the agency of white people and disbelieve in the agency of black people. And so they're basically saying we're the superior race. And gosh, we abused you for so long, and now we're gonna, we want to, we don't want to abuse you anymore. Uh, so we're gonna give you this and push you into that program and push you down this street and up that one. And we're gonna, we're going to agent you out of your despair, your despondency, your weakness. Your, we're gonna, we're gonna get you over the problem of your inferiority. We, because we are superior. We see things you don't see. We know the world better than you know it. And we're going to, therefore, we're going to, we're going to agent you into a, into a better world. So is that ugly? <laughs> uh, it, it, and we've had 50, 60 years of this now. When I was growing up in the era of actual segregation, there was no black underclass. Didn't exist. We were all poor. Um, we were discriminated against in every single area of life, day in and day out. Um, and yet we somehow, we somehow came, we were still the agents of our fate. My father couldn't stand the idea of public housing. Uh, they, my, they bought these ramshackle houses. They, my mother and father rebuilt them. They had a little equity, Built, uh, to, bought another house, did the same thing. Everybody in my neighborhood lived that way. Uh, then, of course, here comes public housing, here comes welfare, here comes this. And, and uh, the op oppression of white supremacy continues under the flag now of white innocence. We're going to oppress you now in the name of our innocence. And my anger with blacks is like, hello, how long are we going to take this? We need to say, don't you dare give us reparations. 
Don't you dare think you can buy our dignity with a few bucks. Don't you dare think you can come up with another gimcrack program and that that's going to somehow make you uh, not racist and you're, and, you're, and you're innocent. And blacks will get ahead when we take that attitude. We, we take our fate back out of other people's hands. How did things get to the point of being anti-American in their messaging? You know, you point out in the film that Martin Luther King Jr. had a very different message that that the civil rights movement wanted into America. This is how you put it in the film. And and the BLM protests want to dismantle America as it stands yeah. now. And you have a yeah. soundbite in there from somebody saying it is time to end the American experience. So how did we cross over from, you know, black protesters? Because we keep, to- we keep paying that. We keep paying off for that. They say these outrageous things. They hate America. America's got to, we've got to break it down and rebuild it. And they keep getting, they get money in universities. They get tenured positions. They get uh, uh, jobs in in HR departments and corporations. Um, Millions of people are now financially supported by this, by this argument that, that America is evil. So there's money in it. There's profit in it. Um, if you if you say that America is not evil, that this is this country has made more moral progress in the last fifty years than any country in human history. If you say that, uh, then you're a racist. You're a bigot. Well, it's it's you know. What's the way out of this double bind? Uh, the way out of it is that people are going to have to find some courage to stand up to this, and it's going to be a, it's going to be a fight because we, we've the the other side is entrenched at this point, um, and uh, the the truth is isolated and seen as dangerous and and so forth. So it, it's going to take it's going to take a lot of courage, but there's no other way. I think the anti-racism uh, movement of today is the big part of the anti-American um, flavor in the air today because when you reduce people to uh, race, to skin color, you're going against the American principle, which segregation is there, which slave owners there. You kind of continue that trend. Now everybody kind of thinks that anti-racism is new today. No, it's not. We did this back in, um, in the 70s with affirmative action. If you remember, affirmative action's original purpose was to go into impoverished, into the black underclass, basically, better school, better teacher, lift these people up after segregation, after all the, uh, after centuries of, of, uh, of oppression, lift them up, believe in these people, these people can do it. Well, what happened was, we were not populated college campuses with black people bashing up. So we turned from that original purpose of affirmative action to racial preferences. We started to racially engineer people into college campuses. That is anti-racism. That's the, I mean, this, we've already been doing this for years, for decades. And you should see what it has not produced, the level of equity that these 
people on the left want. And the question is why? You can't racially engineer people. And Royce, when you turn people into skin color and racially engineer them, you can't turn around and say, okay, now believe in America. Even putting the wrong values on them. And that's the biggest mistake that we've made. Anti-racism really, really separates us from America. You know, you mentioned Eric Holder earlier, and he's somebody who continues to see disparities almost solely through the eyes of race. I mean, we saw that during Obama's presidency. He was sent to Ferguson. Um, the Department of Justice looked into Michael Brown's shooting. Even Eric Holder's Justice Department had to conclude, based on the eyewitness testimony from the witnesses there, who, who uh, the vast majority of whom were black, that the hands up, don't shoot narrative was a lie and that Officer Wilson was justified in shooting Michael Brown, who had attacked him once and appeared to be trying to attack him a second time. However, he he was sure to condemn the Ferguson Police Department as a group uh, in his report. And one of the things he touched on that you mentioned in the movie is, for example, traffic stops, saying 67 percent of the population of Ferguson is black. Eighty five percent of the traffic stops are of blacks saying there is no other explanation for this disparity than implicit racial bias. That is what we hear today. We hear it about corporate America. We still hear it about universities. We hear it about, of course, police and blacks when it comes to traffic stops, um, pullovers, stops, and certainly shootings um, that you know have been in the news. So was mm-hmm. Eric Holder onto something, Shelby? Did he have a point at all about the traffic stops? No, not really. Uh, he he had ninety five percent of the people who live in and around Ferguson are black. So if you had you know eighty seven percent that you were ticketed eighty seven percent blacks, then <laughs> this it's a black world there. Uh, as one one person woman we inter- interviewed who's married to a policeman uh, the. They rank the policemen how many tickets they give. The, the the guy who wins in the Ferguson, the, the police department is giving out the most tickets, is black. Uh, it's a way of life there. Uh, and th- that there is some racial animus behind it. Uh, Holder does, and doesn't offers no support for that whatsoever. Um, if, if you're going to give out tickets, and, and, and of course what happens is because of Holder's report, uh, Ferguson stopped giving out tickets for uh, a while. Of course, uh, speeding went up, crime has gone up, tripled in many cases in, Fer- in Ferguson. Uh, the, the, they just basically gave the town over to the criminals. Um, well, the whole idea of disparity, if there's a disparity, then we say it must be because of racism. Uh, and that's proof that there's racism. Well, the big obvious elephant in the room there is you're talking about a people that were oppressed for four centuries. Suddenly they kind of, they get a, uh, uh, at least a gesture toward freedom in the sixties. Four centuries of oppression is going to bring, is going to cause a deep problem of underdevelopment. These people are not going to have the same levels 
of development as other people. There are going to be disparities all over the place. It's going to take generations for that disparity to disappear. Also, blacks have to now figure out this. You know, we have a, a, a huge problem in underdevelopment. It's so it intimidates us so much, it scares us so much that we keep running back to racism and saying, "Oh, that's our problem. If we can just get rid of racism, then oh, we'll be we'll be equal. There'll be no disparities anymore. We'll all be the same." Well, that's that's ridiculous. If 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 your child is going to preschool or kindergarten and doesn't know their letters and doesn't know their alphabet and does you've never read stories to them you've done nothing to dev- then right away you're perpetuating a, a problem of underdevelopment. We know that with kids by the fourth grade if they can't read at that point then the 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 life ahead is not the, the does not bode well for their their future. Um, because that group does not appreciate yet the extraordinary importance of, of intellectual academic development in young people and that groups that do thrive in America, just absolutely thrive. Groups that don't, whether it's, it's uh, people in Appalachia or people in Harlem, they suffer. Well, that's exactly right. Lower, lower socioeconomic status and poor academic performance are obviously intimately linked. But the, but in, in the first part of the argument, I think some folks will be asking, right, so given that disparity, given that 400-year history, why not create racial preferences at the university level? I realize that it could create some problems for Black students who otherwise wouldn't be admitted to an institution, but it, it helps them create connections that'll help them for life. When you do that, you create an incentive to those students by saying, your race is what got you here, not you, not your hard work, your talent, uh, your development, but your race. But if you history are then, makes them you're then start, back in the same old swamp. But wait, but Shelby, where, let me where, ask you, because if, if history is, this is the, the, this is the Kamala Harris argument that she put out in that little cartoon before the election, that if the black person is starting uh, 50 yards behind the white person at the beginning of the race, shouldn't society do something to help the black person get a little closer to the starting line when, you know, the, the, the race is begun? That's that's the argument behind racial preferences and so on. They should cheer them on. And say so you you got you you but you know you're going to have to work a little harder to get up to the to the to become competitive. Uh, the reality is that you're not. We're profoundly sorry for that. But right now, what you need is development. You need to make sure your your children, when they go to school, are really really ready to learn. That you're pressuring those schools to really demand something from them. That you are putting yourself not at the mercy of white people, but into competition with the white people. Hmm. As my father used to say to me back in the, in the 60s, don't go into a class, the first day of class, and say, well, I want to do as well as uh, the, 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 any, the other black in the class. There'll be one or two. Go in there and say you want to you beat the number one guy or gal, whoever it is. 
go for go for the the whole th- well that's what we need we don't need any more paternalism and and uh, remember i say in that film race is always a means to power it's always a corruption affirmative action has ruined two or three generations of blacks invested them in the idea that their race their victimization is their power not their talent america has just simply got to stop doing that Stop rewarding this this victim focused identity where no matter how high I climb in society, I'm Michelle Obama, I cry the blues. Why not? You you got to be the first lady of the United States. Why not celebrate that? Why not why not show us all of the 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 uh turns in your life where you where you did well and you advanced and you moved ahead? Because you were in charge of your own fate. Become a positive example. She's basically cheerily asking blacks to cry the blues and beg from whites. It's a tragedy, this this symbiosis between black and white America. Where white America wants so much to be innocent of racism. is so plagued with the charge, the accusation of racism. Uh, that it just doesn't, it, 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 it's, it, white America is in a kind of racial anguish. But they keep making the same mistake. They keep thinking about their anguish rather than the, the problems of, of a group of people who've been held down for four centuries. It, it's a lot easier to work to actually, to actually say to blacks, reality. Reality is you are literally underdeveloped. That's that is that is a profound that's that's horrible. Now you must be developed. We will be on the sidelines cheering you on, but we will never lower the standards to let you in because the minute we do that, we give you an investment. Your power is more your color than your character. Mm. It's a corruption. It'll it'll bring you down. Um, let, let's, let's, you, you beat, you beat the best on their own terms. You become America. You don't put America down. You become America. You join rather than, than alienate yourself. No, I want, I want to get, I want to get Eli in on this because I think I'm thinking about you and being a man of color, being a man who's hearing impaired, um, Obviously, you've had a fair amount to deal with in your own life. You don't seem to come from somebody who believes in seeing oneself as a victim. So how do you how did you how did you get here? How important was attitude and state of mind to your success? It was basically either you stink or you swim. I grew up in a time I was born in a time uh, where technology was um, improving. However, technology may give you more hearing, it may give you more um, of that, but it does not erase the barriers. So in every situation I walk into, you know, I'm only I'm the only deaf person in the room. I'm the um, I'm always behind the starting line, I'm always happy to like even on this phone call, I'm thinking, well, if they give you video on this, and then okay, there's no video, okay, so I have to listen the whole time. So the burden always gonna be on me. And I don't mind that because if the burden is on me, 
and I make it happen. And that's the most empowering thing that we can do. The fact that I can sit here and listen for one hour without any video, without any lip reading, it's a big achievement for me. It may not be for other people, but it is for me. It, it gives me power. It gives me belief in myself. Nobody else can give that to me. And that's a very simple lesson that we're staying here. The government can't give you that. Technology can't give you that. You, your individual, by, by taking on the challenges of life, rising up and taking them on and to see it, making a film. I had somebody ask me the other day, you're dead. How can you make a film? You've never been around dead people or anything like that. And I was kind of like, oh, I just made a film. Like, it's just part of who I am. And so that's where the real power comes from. Is it fair? Do you wish that you could have it, have it easy? Of course. It's not going to be fair. I'm going to be wiped out after the conversation because I could pay so much attention. But I'm really having any other way. And so that's what's so important is that we need to really understand that even somebody who is in the black underclass or somebody who is profoundly deaf, born deaf like me, has enormous power. And it is that power that we need to nurture. We need to uh, cheer on, as my dad says. And in America would be a much better country for that. Mm. Eli. You're going to make me emotional say, here. <laughs> <laughs> I, right? To, to hear you say that is so uplifting. I, I want to make a confession to you in response to your honesty, which is when we were talking about booking you and your dad, we discussed the fact that you're hearing impaired and how will the audience be able to understand you since we don't have video and we can't put words up for them to follow if if they can't understand. And I said, are we putting him in an uncomfortable position because he, he can't see me either? And in the end, we said, let's let's let him decide, right? Like if he'll tell us if he's not comfortable with this and we'll go from there. And so to hear you say it, it is a challenge, you willingly met it, knowing it might be hard, and that now having accomplished it, you feel better about yourself, you feel stronger, you feel more confident. It's just a microcosm of what else is possible for anyone feeling disadvantaged, right? It's like, you've inspired me, you've inspired me not to be paternalistic, <laughs> not to not to assume someone else can't and that I have to be the savior. I. I love what you said. Yeah. Thank, you, thank you. And I really do appreciate the fact that you gave me the chance. Since this, um, uh, since we've been doing the publicity for the film, I've had about four people pull out uh, because I was deaf. So I really appreciate you giving me that chance. And that's just the way it is. So give me the chance. Give everybody the chance. Let them think or fly. And that's all we can do. Oh my God! I got now. I got tears in my eyes. Shelby. Yeah, you got me. Because <laughs> I, I, well, you know what can I say? Uh, I'm so proud. Um, but it, it's important. This young man, uh, he, well, I'll just say he he had the worst uh, and um, uh, what's the test that they measure your hearing in in Santa Clara County, in a huge county, which is now Silicon Valley, he had the worst audiogram. 
of any kid in the history of that county. You could shoot a gun off and he couldn't hear it. So we're not talking about somebody who's just a little bit deaf. Um, there's nobody else uh, in America that I'm aware of with the degree of hearing loss that he has who functions like he does. Um, and he's never given himself an excuse. Uh, he puts himself in every situation and, and faces it down. Uh, he's a, a very rare uh, young man. I'm very proud of him. Mm, wow. You know, well, can I ask you, because I didn't actually ask this question, Eli, how are you hearing me? How can you hear me? Um, about um, in 2000, I got a cochlear implant. And um, it's basically an electrode that they put into the cochlea of your ear. And uh, people that I had hearing aid. And the hearing aid gave me about 15% of what you may hear. So I think that's a testament to my parents because it took about, I was um, diagnosed as deaf when I was about one, from one until about four, despite you know, uh, school therapy, endless therapy. I never said a word. People mm-hmm. call my parents abusive for not putting me into sign language. They kept the faith, and eventually I said my first word. And from then on, I was on my way. And in 2000, I got the cochlear implant. It gave me about 80% of what you hear. It's amazing. I mean, amazing the fact that I could do this phone call. I could have not done you know, in 1999. So I am very blessed to live in a world where technology, all of that stuff made things possible. Mm-hmm. It's it's miraculous. I I it makes me want to circle back to something you said earlier, Shelby, which is the willingness to fight. You know, to fight for yourself, to fight for what you know you believe in, what you can do. And I think, gosh, this is a situation for so many Americans right now who are not swallowing this divisive rhetoric we're being fed by BLM and Robin DiAngelo and corporate America that's making us all believe we all come down to our pigmentation. And yet people are afraid. They, they are afraid to speak up. So what, what do they do? That's the power. Um, well, again, I, my parents were met and married in the civil rights movement. I grew up in the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, King was a kind of newcomer. Johnny come lately in my (laughs) family. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the things that I learned, and blacks were very reluctant in the 50s to go with in, in the civil rights. My father would have to really knock on people's doors to get them to come out and demonstrate. And, and uh, they, would, uh, they would tell him he was just a troublemaker and, and, and so forth. What I learned in the civil rights movement is that the only thing that ever really brings change for the better is when people find their courage to, to say uh, and be accountable for what they truly believe. And the civil rights movement was a, a high moment in human affairs. Um, the American people came to a point where they, they said, okay, segregation is wrong, period. 
whatever that consequence that brings, it, it just brings. But we're no longer going to deny it. We're going to have the courage to stand. Because before that, if you protested, you were an outsider, a radical, a troublemaker, and so forth. Uh, but people found the courage. White America today has pretty much lost its moral courage, its moral authority. And it gives over to these complaints of, uh, of victimization way too easily and never asks anything in return. Well, there's going to come a point where, where I think the masses of people of Americans, black, white, and otherwise, are going to become tired of this and find the courage to say so and act on it. I don't think we're going to keep getting away with this. Things that people are bound to, as time moves on, to find their confidence and hold America accountable. If you want to, if you find yourself in a situation where you are in any way playing around with lowering a standard to accommodate some demand from a minority group that's claiming victimization, and you give in to that, then you can't complain. That's weakness. People have got to stand up and say, I love you. I wish you the very best. You, we're all Americans. We're all in it together. We all live by the same standards. If I lowered the standards, I'd be saying you're not a real American. I'd be, I'd be humiliating you. Then I'd be a racist. But I'm not a racist. Uh, I know you can compete in the same level that everybody else competes. Um, when people finally have the courage to enforce that, we'll, we'll all be better off. Shelby and Eli Steele, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having us. It was a, a pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. really enjoyed it. Today's episode was brought to you in part by Blinds Galore. Get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted. Visit BlindsGalore.com today and choose The Megan Kelly Show at checkout to learn more. Go ahead and subscribe to the show right now if you haven't, please, uh, on, on Apple or wherever you're getting our podcast from. Subscribe, download, rate and review. Five stars, por favor. A written review is always appreciated. Still reading them, still loving them. Um, but I want to tell you, you're not going to want to miss Monday's show because we've got Deborah So. She is a neuroscientist who is basically forced out of her chosen profession. She studies uh, gender, sex, all, all of it. And uh, now she's a journalist who writes about it because she stuck to the science and refused to sign on to the gender is a social construct, sort of woke ideology now. And she says it's not a social construct, that there are two genders, male and female, um, that there are two biological sexes, male and female. And then she kind of takes it from there. And we're going to talk to her about why she's so adamant about that, why we're seeing the rise of something called babies instead of babies, why some hospitals are now removing the girl or boy designation from the little wristbands they put on infants newly born, and where our society appears to be going on something that used to be pretty simple, one's biological sex. She's got some fascinating insights. I know you're going to love this interview, so please go ahead and subscribe. And in the meantime, have a wonderful holiday weekend. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda and no fear.
The Megyn Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.